0: Wealthmanagement.com presents Success Zone, a podcast dedicated to bringing financial advisors sweeping insights beyond the market headlines to help them become more savvy about the industry, transform their practice, enhance their marketing skills, and take their business to the next level. Listen in for a wealth of information that includes remarkable success stories and expert advice from the industry's key players and most successful and skilled financial professionals.
1: Hello and welcome to part one of a three-part podcast series with Wells Fargo. Over these three podcasts, we will answer some of the most pressing questions advisors have about buying, selling, and transitioning your practice. I'm your host, Matt Haller, and we are recording remotely today. So if there are any audio issues, well, it's just kind of the joys of recording remotely. But we're going to discuss today how to be ready to be ready to buy or sell a practice with John Williamson and Dennis Leininger from Wells Fargo. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Now, let's set the stage. What does it mean to be ready to be ready, and why is this so important to advisors today?
2: Well, Matt, this is John. Like all good ideas, they came to us from the field, from the independent advisors within our network. And what we noticed over the last several years was a tendency for Dennis and myself to be engaged in one-on-one conversations with practices. And whether they were considering a buy or a sell, nothing immediately was in front of them. They just wanted to prepare and be ready when that opportunity presented itself. And so what we began to do over time was to prepare some content that we could share with small groups and larger groups at professional development and meetings that we were conducting. And we built the idea based on feedback that we got from the field. And it's all about preparation and being ready to uh, take advantage of the opportunity if someone's looking to go into acquisition. Conversely, if someone's interested in working less and retiring, to at least have a concept in mind before they need to start doing something. So really, from my view, from our view, it's all about preparation.
1: Let's start with sellers, since there's so many of them. According to J.D. Power, the average age of an advisor is 55, with one-fifth of them being over the age of 65. Dennis, where do they begin? The first thing is to begin to understand what their
3: timeline is, what they want to accomplish with this, if they want to continue working within their practice, if they want to slow down, if they have a timeline for when they want to exit, what's driving that timeline? Is it a retirement, a family, a health consideration, or just other outside interests that they want to move to? And then the next step would be to decide what it is that they have to sell. Some people have practices, others have businesses. And so they need to determine what that is. The next step after that would be to get a valuation on what it is that they're going to sell. And lastly, they need to decide what's really important to them within that sale. Is it making sure that their clients are well taken care of? Is it making sure that their employees have a path forward in their career? Is it a financial consideration? And some other things as well. And the truth is it's probably all of those things.
2: I would also add that along with assessing the timeline and the other important elements that Dennis just mentioned is assessing, assuming that they're affiliated with an independent broker dealer, another starting point is to assess what resources are available to assist them at their current firm today.
1: This sounds like a very involved process. How long does this process last? In your experience, and I'm sure in many people's experience, advisors have an unrealistic expectation on how long this should take selling a practice. Could you guys inform us on how long the process lasts? It depends on what's driving the reason for the sale.
3: Again, if it's a health consideration, that process is, is going to be shortened. It's going to be compressed. And we've seen those kinds of a sale happen, honestly, within three to four weeks. If it's a longer-term type of a consideration, hey, it's five years out, I want to decide how I'm going to create my succession plan so that everybody is well taken care of, it can take that long to put all the pieces together. But from the time a seller decides, okay, it's time for me to go ahead and do this, do the discovery, find a seller, or buyer rather to go through the process of discovery usually that type of time frame is like 3 to 4 months
2: i would tend to agree for sure and something that can add to the process it goes back to just that honest assessment of what the advisor wants to do and ideally when they want to do it The average timeline that we hear as we consult with practices and individual advisors considering their options is three to five years. We typically hear three to five years about every time. Now it could easily be three to five years, but oftentimes that becomes a rolling clock and it just adds time to the process. And it could easily be done in six months, perhaps longer, perhaps shorter, But they really need to identify, again, what timeline will they honestly stick with? And that'll be added into the process that they're willing to pursue.
1: These next two questions we're going to dive into more deeply in episode number two of this three-part series. But just from a 30,000-foot view, at what point do I tell my staff, and what happens to them if the sale goes through?
2: Well, we've seen this happen both ways. We've seen this happen where... A potential seller is informing their staff early in the process and the staff is actually engaged in some degree with the sale efforts the advisor has. And then conversely, it's just the advisor or team that's considering the sale and then they inform their staff uh, much later in the process as well. It really just depends on what the advisor is comfortable with and in their unique situation as they assess their options.
1: What happens to those team members if the sale goes through? I think that there's some concern with the staff or associate wealth advisors that if the primary advisor, the owner of the business, sells the practice, that this could have some sort of impact on them. Could you elaborate? Usually,
3: if it's it's a staff member that is very close to the client's, the buyer has a vested interest in wanting that individual to have a continued career at least for some time until they, they earn their stripes with a new firm and they become comfortable together. But there's a, there's a definite value add in having staff continue so that the clients have a certain amount of, of continuity uh, with who they are talking to. In some cases when it's uh, maybe a a newer type of a person or depending on the role and there's a scale of economy with the the buyer in bringing the practice in that they're acquiring, then sometimes those individuals' positions are lost and we do everything
1: we can to help them transition into other roles with other companies. When do I tell my clients? And I think more importantly – how do I tell my clients that I'm about to sell my practice?
2: This is probably one of the most, if not the most critical piece in putting together a successful merger and acquisition. And more often than not, a seller is not going to be communicating with clients until they have the certainty that the deal is in place and that ownership has been transferred. How they message to the clients is something that we coach and consult on. It involves individual conversations, on the phone, written communication, and a team dynamic where it's well coordinated. Everyone's on the same page, including staff, and the message is very organized and delivered for a short or a longer period of time, depending on what's necessary.
3: And I might just add that it's, it is is a very strategic, to me, this is the, the most critical part of the entire process is the gentle handoff of the clients from the, the seller to the buyer, the germination of that relationship. And so, like John said, there definitely needs to be a, a agreement, an understanding between the buyer and the seller as to how that plan is going to roll out, what is that client experience going to be, so it's as presented in as complete a manner and comfortable manner as possible. It's all about client retention, and then also, of course, it's about making sure that the clients are
1: well taken care of. What is the difference between exit and succession planning? A lot of times those words are used kind of synonymously, but that's not the case. Could one of you elaborate on what the difference is between those two? To me, it's really a
3: question of where it hits in the timeline. And exit planning is, I need to go ahead and leave my business, and how am I going to do that? A succession plan is, someday I know that I'm going to be leaving my business. I want to make sure that my clients, my business, my employees, perhaps my colleagues, that everything is well planned for so that we have a path forward over the next several years to make sure that everything is in place to go ahead and implement that plan.
2: I would add that getting the definition correct, exit versus succession, is important because an advisor engages either with their broker-dealer or with specialty services that will help them with the sale of their business. They'll need to understand what that timeline is, certainly, but describing it as a succession plan when it's really a more immediate exit would alter the resources or the consulting that the firm or those outside companies would provide. So it's just an important landing spot to get correct right away, exit versus succession.
1: We're going to switch gears now. We just talked about selling a practice. Now let's talk about buying a practice. How do I evaluate potential sellers? What am I looking for? And what does a good fit look like? To me, it starts with making
3: sure that the practice itself, the investment philosophies, the the demographics, the type of the business is a good fit between buyer and seller so that you can assimilate it into your book uh, and into your practice, your business operations in a good manner. Uh, The more diverse it is, that can also be a strategy if you want to branch out into some other things, but it does take a significant greater effort to go ahead and work from that standpoint. Also, the size of the book, the number of clients, do you have the bandwidth to go ahead and and assimilate those practices? And where's the location? Is that a location that you have ties to that you're interested in that you can service? Because not all acquisitions are in your immediate proximity. As a matter of fact, we've seen an uptick in the number of acquisitions between state lines. From state to state so it does make a significant difference from that standpoint and then also financially how can i afford to buy this practice does it make good economic
1: sense for me to do so many advisors who are selling their practice think that their practice is worth a lot more than it actually is so how do you as a buyer interpret the valuation i look at it from the metric standpoint I begin discussions with
3: sellers as to the metrics that created the value so that we can really understand what's driving that value and what items might be a concern or a selling point to a potential buyer. And you think of it like a house. You can have a beautiful house in a neighborhood where the comps are all excellent and it drives up your value. But if your house needs a new roof the buyers are going to need to consider that as they approach buying the home, and how many are even interested in assimilating that cost. So we go through and, and discuss each of the metrics, the age of the clients, the the balance of the book. Uh, you know, what is advisory, what is trails, or is there transactional business? Uh, just the whole weight of it, how many clients there are. All these things are value drivers, and it helps to educate the seller as to what the value of their book really is, and then also helps them in terms of the conversations with potential buyers.
2: I think a great starting point would be to get your own practice valued it hasn't been done already or recently. And if it has been done recently, kudos to those folks that do that proactively. I would also recommend, if that is the case, have the valuation company provide another session with that practice on their their valuation findings and just walk through the valuation again. It'll absolutely make you a better buyer and appreciate more of what's going to be important for you to be looking for as a potential buyer.
1: Some of these practices can be a lot of money. Should I get pre-qualified for financing?
2: We think it's a best practice, just be proactive. We have relationships with several third party lending institutions and we recommend potential buyers get to know those companies and the process behind getting qualified for financing ahead of time. It could take 30 days, it could take 45 days or longer for the process to go from start to finish. So having either pre-qualification or getting engaged in the process ahead of time, before you need to put a deal together, can absolutely be a proactive step and can make you more tactical and ready to uh, take advantage of an opportunity.
3: And we strongly encourage potential buyers to do this, to at least initiate conversations with the lenders, just for nothing else to do their due diligence, to learn what the process is like with the possible loan structures entail, et cetera, we do find that some of these lenders are hesitant to go through a real pre-qualifying program because they have so many sales that are happening currently, they just don't have time to delegate the staff to do all these things. But that can also be your answer as you talk to some of these firms, whether or not they're going to be a viable lender for you.
1: Who pays for the legal documents? I know that there's a substantial amount of paperwork involved with this. Is that done by the buyer or the seller?
3: Both. Um, We usually see that the buyer and seller split the cost of the preparation of the documents and then each pays their own attorney for further review of those documents and for representation for their side of the transaction. However, we do see probably almost an equal amount of buyers paying for the creation of the documents.
2: There's also real value in making the commitment ahead of time to spend the necessary dollars to get good, complete documents put into place. It's just not something that you want to cut costs on unnecessarily and having it done correctly is critical.
1: My favorite question, and the one that I can't wait to hear your answers on is how should the payout be structured? There seems to be a lot of conversation about this, and I'm really interested in your take on these payout structures. Well, if I might take
3: that one, I have a very strong philosophy on that, That I don't think that the, the payout structure is prescriptive. I think that it definitely depends upon what the seller needs and what the buyer needs, and then it can be constructed with that, there are so many great options out there now. Ten years ago, everything was seller held promissory notes for the practices, and that's still a popular aspect of a sales structure but it you have to consider the time, the tax considerations, and now all the lenders that are out there in in addition to what existed 10 years ago. So this is something that we're very much involved in and trying to understand what does the seller want to accomplish? What are their CPAs advise them on? How can we protect the the buyers as well? What do their CPAs advise them to do from a tax consideration and a cash flow consideration? And then we work with all the tools that are inherent in every sale to make sure that something is constructed that works for all parties.
2: I would add that the increasing availability of advisor lending options that have been brought to the market in the last four to five years has just been a huge catalyst for change in the structure that Dennis mentioned. Um, It's just created a variety of options. And of course, being independent offers flexibility in and of itself You put a deal together.
1: How should I get introduced to my new clients? You have a process for this, and we are going to dive into it a little bit more deeply in podcast number two, but would you mind giving us an overview on how I, as the purchasing advisor, get introduced to my new clients?
2: Well, in today's environment, it's different, and buyer and seller are becoming more creative as a result of the environment that we find ourselves in today. For example, as a a buyer, you can't go visit your clients in person right now and shake hands with them and get to know them uh, in person, at least not just yet. And so it's really created an opportunity for buyer and seller to really create a multifaceted approach of client communication and then getting to know clients by phone and did the appointment, and then those in-person meetings can take place later. But regardless, it has to be well-coordinated and structured over a one- to two- to three-month period of time, whatever's necessary, and it's something that is specifically planned for.
3: And like everything else that we do, it's based on the client experience. So working with a seller to understand how they feel the 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 clients will react best to this news and to the introduction of the buyer is a critical part of the process. Also, what information about the clients could be shared from the seller to the buyer so that the buyer goes into it with a certain amount of context when they're talking to these, these clients is huge. It comes back to having a plan working backwards from, from green to tea to understand exactly how do we want that client experience to be and to make sense to them and then to put the buyer in the, in the process and into the relationship so that they can earn that trust and build it over time it doesn't happen in that first
1: contact it's, it's an ongoing type of a thing how many people should i expect to lose both staff and clients We've
3: seen a very, very low number of staff if they are desired to be retained. The staff usually ends up, the seller staff usually ends up having very strong relationships with the clients and for them to be able to continue working with the clients and their basic roles staying the same, they seem to be very happy with that just depending on where they are in the stage of their careers. As far as client goes, Again, if this is a well-thought-out strategy and agreed-upon messaging and you work the plan, we've seen excellent retention. Clients aren't all that interested in going out and meeting new advisors, especially like John said in this environment. So there is a certain amount of inertia where a seller's clients will stay with the buyer and give them a chance, especially if the seller has done a good job saying, I've done my due diligence, I have found my successor, and handpicked them because I feel like they will do a good job in taking care of you. So to answer your question, I would want to keep that well within 5%, and usually it's better than that but it's also important, of course, to make sure that if you're going to lose clients, there is a 5% that is more tolerable to lose than another 5% of your assets.
2: Yes, we've seen very low attrition on both clients and staff associates, and to Dennis's point, it's largely because of the sound and solid work that the advisors, buyer and seller, have put into communicating In working through their transition as they put the uh, merger and acquisition together.
1: All right, last question to wrap up podcast number one of a three part series here. How can you two help our listeners?
2: So, the advisors that we work with in our network, what we do is we walk them through the process of getting ready. It starts with things like evaluation do they need to establish a continuity plan for their practice here's how to go about doing that let us share with you the resources that we have at our broker dealer to help you work less retire finish well or otherwise grow your practice by acquisition do you need to have a conversation with your local cpa and attorney about what your plans are and if so we'd be happy to add content to that conversation Do you need to meet and interact with other advisors at your broker-dealer? We have a networking plan at Finet that has been up and running for years, which shows advisors how to get to know other independent reps in their marketplace. And that can be a great starting point to either grow by acquisition or otherwise identifying a practice that someone can sell and retire with.
3: And I would just add to that that Wells Fargo Finance makes me available to work with their business owners, whether you're buying or selling uh, or creating any kind of a continuity plan. And I'm more in the trenches uh, initially where I'm really working with each party to lead them through each of these steps and getting where they're trying to go, helping them see the vision and then getting very granular with, okay, well, here are your options, and here's the next step, and being involved with those discussions with them and with subject matter experts where needed.
2: I'll echo Dennis's comments. Since making Dennis available to our business owners several years ago, it's been a game changer for us, and the value add to the field has been tremendous for both buyers and sellers, so we're very pleased working. With Dennis alongside of his expertise and the resources that he provides our team.
1: Well, Dennis and John, thank you so much for walking us through how to be ready to be ready, part one of the three part podcast series that we're going to talk about buying, selling, and transitioning their practice. Thanks, guys. Thank you.
0: The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthManagement.com. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for information and educational purposes only wealthmanagement.com does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy applicability fitness or completeness of the content or of any sites listed or linked to the content the content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service with any questions you have regarding your investment planning